contemporary computation is so complex and so opaque to most people and unknowable in its totality to anyone that we lack a lot of the kind of cognitive skills and the social structures to live healthily within it. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is writer, artist, and technologist James Bridal. James's artwork has been commissioned by numerous galleries and institutions uh, throughout the world, and his writing on literature, culture, and networks has appeared in magazines and newspapers, including Wired, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. In 2018, he authored the book The New Dark Age, and just this year, he recently published The Ways of Being. In this episode, we explore James's books with a particular emphasis on the lessons the natural world is teaching us about intelligence and how we can leverage that information to alter AI development towards something that's more humanistic and more harmonious with the planet. And now let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the podcast, James Bridle. best place to start then is with this series of books that you recently wrote the new dark age and the ways of being and one thing that i'm interested in is that they're both kind of critical of technology they they're quite challenging to the status quo and from very unique perspectives uh could you just talk a little bit about what made it motivated you to kind of explore maybe some of the failures of, of technology from these lenses? Certainly. Um, so I, I mean, I've been working in and around technology for 20 plus years now. My, my academic background a very long time ago was in computer science. Um, when I also studied a lot of the kind of AI stuff that's um, particularly prominent in, in the latest book, Ways of Being, um, and it's kind of weird to reflect on that because I was studying it then at a time when it was really on the way out. Uh, it was it was very unpopular. It didn't seem to be going anywhere, um, which I didn't realize when I started studying it, but it become evident by the end. Um, uh, and it, it's striking that actually not much has changed though. Like the underlying um, ideas that driving the kind of co contemporary boom in AI, much of the maths, <laughs> Uh, is still the same as it was then, but the massive change has been in data and processing, essentially, which are also symptoms of the same thing. You know, we've, we've had 20 years of vast data accumulation by social media companies and by governments. That's a huge driver of the kind of current capabilities of AI. And then you also have the increase in processing power, which comes at huge energy costs. So I think there's a kind of through line to some of the stuff I've been writing about, you know, more recently. Um, uh, the first book came about, I've been making artwork and, and working around technology for, for a long time. And I always wanted to write a book about the internet. And I thought it would be a book about how great the internet is. Um, but I started writing that book, which came out in 2017. Um, I started writing it sort of between Brexit and Trump's election. Um, when it became, you know, unavoidable that it was impossible to write a book about how great the internet was because the internet was so obviously contributing in quite important ways to these ruptures in culture, these things that really seem to be damaging society in various ways. And having already studied a lot of the kind of weird effects of that, it felt necessary to write something that tried to account for those things in some way. And so New Dark Age is, is a book about the current state of technology. Really not very much has changed in the last five years regarding what I wrote in that book, I don't think. Uh, without trying to propose any kind of solutions, indeed thinking that a lot of the framing of technological issues as being amenable to simple solutions being a big part of the problem. But the main kind of thesis of, those, of that book is that contemporary computation is so complex and so opaque to most people and unknowable in its totality to anyone that we lack a lot of the kind of cognitive skills and the social structures 
to live healthily within it. And within that book, I, I looked at all kinds of things, everything from kind of algorithmic systems, whether that's the thing that chooses what YouTube video you watch next, all the way up to systems used for kind of predictive policing or judicial sentencing, looking at the kind of biases within them, the kind of emergent effects um, that, uh, that trip us up or, or worse. Um, and the, just the kind of culture that those, that the, the internet in general and these particular systems within it seem to be creating that we're just not very good at talking about or addressing. Um, one of the chapters in that book was also focused on, on ecology and the climate, talking about the impact of not just computational systems, which do generate vast amounts of kind of greenhouse gases and require huge amounts of energy and uh, all kinds of things um but also on the cognitive aspect of it which is also a big part of what new dark age was i kind of sketched out this view of what i called computational thinking which is what happens when we see the whole world as being like a computer um and and we because of the you know um complexity but also power of the computational tools that we use all the time we've sort of shaped our way of understanding the world through those technologies, which is powerful in certain aspects, but hugely limiting in others. And writing that chapter scared me a little bit because it made me do quite a lot of research into the current kind of climate situation, more than even I, who's a pretty interested person in this stuff, had done previously. Um, and it also seemed to hit a nerve with, with readers. It's one of the ones that kind of gets quoted back to me the most. Um, and I think that's that's quite a key realization because it really expresses the extent to which amongst all the other things these technologies do is they tend to separate us from the earth, from the ground on which we actually stand. And they're largely tools of abstraction. Um, they create these kind of alternative and very limited models of the world in which we spend most of our time and thought and, and lead us to pay less attention to the world around us. And I don't just mean that in a kind of old man shouting at clouds way in kind of kids these days. Um, but I just think they have very fundamental impacts on the way that we think and how we imagine the world. And that desire for simple solutions to incredibly complex problems is one of them. Um, and also just the general kind of malaise of the contemporary era, our kind of lack of um, uh trust in politics even in community at large our increased atomization the growth of kind of fundamentalism extremism conspiracy theories and just increased division is partly a product of these kind of computational worldviews and partly a result of our, our lack of agency knowing we live with inside these complex systems that we certainly don't control and barely understand and not knowing how to act meaningfully within them and so in the last, the last few years, you know, partly as a result of the reaction to that climate chapter, I've refocused my practice around the environment and around ecology, as I think probably the most important thing any of us could be working on if we can in the present moment, while at the same time trying to bring a little bit of what I know from my previous work or my previous focus to bear on questions of ecology. And so in the new book, there's a lot about ecology, and, and the extraordinary abilities of, of kind of the more than human world, um, everything that we share the world with that is not human and yet exhibits kind of extraordinary agency and intelligence in various ways. Um, but I, I come to it a little bit through the lens of technologies that we've created ourselves, and perhaps we can talk a bit more about those ideas in a bit. Um, and also try to think a little bit about how, how technology could be otherwise. Um, with particular attention to the question of if we are to go forward into a better world, whatever that looks like, uh, you know, so often it feels like either we are on a kind of accelerationist path in which these technologies will continue to grow in power and complexity until we reach some point of collapse, or the alternative kind of deep ecological view is we'll just have to reject all of these technologies um, and, and you know, essentially go back to the caves in, in a sort of extreme formulation. And I'm always on the lookout for something slightly more hopeful and interesting than either of those proposals, but which will nevertheless require a kind of huge rethinking and readaptation on our part. 
And so that's really what Ways of Being is about, is about looking at the world through new eyes, but informed by a lot of what we do know and trying to think um, of new kind of structures and processes that we could generate together with everybody else that we share this planet with in the hope of kind of more just and equitable futures. Yeah, and beyond just being more harmonious with nature, are there specific lessons that you think we could adopt from nature? I, I think at one point you mentioned like forests, fungi and octopus, octopi, you know, and their ability to um, some of the ways they express their intelligence. Do you think there's wisdom there that we can use to kind of break us out of that more binary computational worldview that you you feel is harming us so much? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I cite kind of many examples, and I'll be happy to 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 tell some of those pretty good stories. Um, but more broadly, the the lesson really is that if we can decenter the human from some of our expectations of the world around us, stop seeing humanity and particularly human intelligence as being both unique and um, kind of higher or more special than all other ways of, of living in this world, then we have vast amounts to learn um, about how to live with the earth and with other species in ways that are more sustainable. Uh, and that, you know, that really does involve treating everybody else we share this planet with uh, with far more kind of care and respect than we than we mostly have done for the last few centuries, if not longer, um, and and reimagining what our relationships would be, how we share space, how we make decisions, um, and and simply how we how we think about other species, uh, particularly as you know with trying to imagine them as collaborators uh, and and knowledge keepers for for huge amounts of things that we do very badly on this planet, but they have evolved many marvelous capabilities for doing otherwise. Yeah, are there cases of uh, like biomimicry that you've you've seen or uh, thought about that you think would be really great if we implemented? Well, I mean, it's less about, so biomimicry is an odd one. Um, I don't think of too much about biomimicry, but I, I do think about when we find examples in nature of creatures that seem to do things very well that we really struggle with. Um, so uh, uh, a really good example of this is uh, slime molds, uh, which are strange unicellular little critters somewhere between fungi and, and algae. They don't really fit into the established categories we have for other species. They, some, they spend part of their life cycle as kind of individual little squiggly amoeba-like creatures and sometimes as kind of big sacks of cytoplasm with free-floating nuclei as kind of collaborative cooperative agents um, and they have some particularly extraordinary abilities um, a few years ago some researchers at the university of tokyo made a little sort of petri dish arrangement with um, oat flakes resembling uh, oat flakes which the slime molds really like to eat in the in the pattern of population centers of the greater tokyo area and they also used light which slime molds don't like very much to represent kind of rivers and mountains, kind of uh, difficult geographical obstacles. And then they put slime mold uh, on this plate. And what slime mold tries to do, one of the things it tries to do or seems to try to do is find the most efficient routes between food sources. And within 24 hours, this slime mold had basically recreated very clearly and obviously the pattern of the Tokyo metro system, this very cleverly engineered, highly efficient network system for this kind of particular geographical um, outline. And, um, and that's a neat trick, um, but it, it goes quite a lot further. Scientists subsequently discovered that they could set up an experiment to see how well a slime mold could solve the traveling salesman problem, which is a, a really, well, it's a very simple mathematical problem that's very, very hard to solve, um, which simply asks the question that if you have five or six cities to visit, what's the shortest you know, route you can take to visit each of them only once? Um, and this is incredibly hard for humans and for computers because it's what's called exponentially difficult. Because if you have five cities, it's five times, four times, three times, two times, one possible routes, and you have to evaluate each one. There's no shortcut. But if you add one more city, then it's six times, five times, four times, three times, times one. So this gets much, much harder very, very quickly, which is exactly the kind of problem that humans and computers absolutely hate. Um, but slime molds don't seem to have a problem with it. They solve it in linear time. I, it doesn't get harder for them each time. They just keep solving it on the same kind of 
um, straight line of, of, of time solving. And we don't know how they do it. Um, it. It's not a mechanism that we're amenable to. And yet they've solved a problem that we spend, humanity collectively spends billions of pounds on. I mean, imagine if you're a big logistics company, but also it's simply we don't know a mechanism to solve it this efficiently. So there's some other ability, but also it's clearly some other way of thinking there. Um, another of my favorites is, you know, to illustrate it in a slightly different way, is that um, for the last few years, I've been working with scientists in, in northern Greece. I, I live in Greece. Um, and these scientists researching a, a class of plants called hyperaccumulators. Um, hyperaccumulators occur all over the world in various forms. Um, but what they have in common is that they're capable of living in particularly metal rich soils, whatever that metal might be. Um, in Greece, it's nickel, um, but they're found for all kinds of different substances around the world. And when a soil is very rich in metal, it's very hard. That's toxic to most kinds of plants. But that means certain plants have evolved to to deal with it. And the way they, they deal with it is that they're actually capable of kind of drawing up the metal into their uh, stems, into their leaves and storing it there. Uh, the first research, big research onto these kind of plants was actually done in the 90s by mining companies who thought that they could plant these plants on like old industrial sites and they'd essentially clean the soil. And that's called phytoremediation. It actually does work really, really well. Um, so it's you know something that plants can help us do without us adding like additional damage or chemical load into the soils. Um, the researchers that I work with in Greece, they're actually doing something called phytomining which is that they're planting these plants on, on just open fields, not old industrial sites, but where there is this rich nickel content already there. The, they then let the plants grow and then they harvest the plants. And then you can get the metal back out of the plants again. Uh, they can burn the plants. Uh, they can burn the plants for heat. Uh, so there's a kind of circularity, more energy generation. The plant's roots stay in the ground, uh, which retains carbon dioxide. Um, so there's this kind of beautiful arrangement out of which we get metal after the plants get continual kind of growing cycles. Um, and the plants that they're using there are really interesting. There, there's three different kinds. There's um, uh, one that grows kind of all around the Mediterranean. There's one that only grows in kind of northern Greece and Albania. And there's one that only grows within 50 kilometers of the site. It's called Bumuela Timfaya. It's named after Mount Timfi, the highest peak of this mountain range. And so the, they're called endemics. So that they grow only in these sort of local areas. And what that means is they've evolved a particular knowledge of that place over millions and millions of years. And they figured out how to do something very specific, which is to extract quite a difficult complex, even toxic substance from the ground without damaging the earth. And in fact, by making it more hospitable for other plants. And, and that given the way in which we typically mine for materials is, is an extraordinary thing to see. Um, the plants are capable of mining metals far more successfully and, and in harmony with the earth than we are. And so this, for me, that's a, a really key example of, the, of a, a knowledge embedded in these creatures developed by these creatures that we have so much to learn from. Yeah, and you're touching on something there that I think is really interesting as we, you know, build and develop artificial intelligence, which is that our technological intelligence is kind of made in a vacuum or in a lot of ways disconnected from the ecology of the planet. It's very much made, you know, with a narrow focus with a very narrow set of data in most cases. And it's not really getting that millions of years of education that you talked about that the plant has as it develops its relationship with its environment. Do you think that that's part of what the issue here is that a lot of our technology is so, uh, I guess, just isolated from the reality of the world and the human condition? I mean, yeah, not just the human condition, but the kind of global ecological condition. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the book, I, I described the kind of AI that we're largely developing at present as corporate AI, because it is largely developed by, um, by large corporations or occasionally by governments. And this is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, um, because the way in which AI currently functions is, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is, is, is largely as a function of having vast amounts of data and vast amounts of processing power, both of which cost huge amounts of money. So to, the, the ability to develop this kind of AI in the present moment is very much limited to those with huge amounts
amounts of money in advance. Uh, and so, of course, it's going to follow into their their, their kind of desires, uh, which are largely profit driven. The, the success metric for these AIs is ultimately how much money they can make. And if you think of an, an organism, of any organism that's evolved within a system in which its primary aim is to make more money, you're going to end up with a pretty grim and very specific type of intelligence. Um, you can you can imagine the kind of that framework of of digital corporate development as being like a kind of ecological niche into which this this these forms of AI are fitting very, very neatly, but in a very, very narrow fashion and with very, very little connection to everything else that really matters upon this planet. Um, I, you know, for me, this this, you know, I got this sense of that very clearly from watching just even the very basic examples of, of how you see kind of an AI emerging into the world. I mean, it's important, I think, to make the distinction here between the AI that we actually have, which is largely just quite complex algorithms, um, machine learning, which is brilliant, but it's not intelligence. Um, and um, a, a distinction between that and the kind of public idea of AI, the kind of science fiction popular imagination which is also very interesting and possibly more powerful as a, a driver of our imaginations than the reality of AI, because it's been with us for, for much longer and is much more powerful, but again, tends towards the idea of a something like the human. And that idea of something like the human is a continual problem we have with thinking about these things. But when you, you know, just looking at the the places in which AI has appeared in the popular imagination as a result of this strange path of its development over the last couple of decades. You know, it's striking to which most of those examples are to do with essentially beating humans at things that we are either considered to be quite good at um, or particularly enjoy, like playing games um, or you know, replacing us and automating us out of work and livelihoods in various ways, because it is at heart largely competitive because of its kind of profit impulse, the way most AI is developed is in, is in the form of um, uh, essentially competing against human benchmarks in various ways. So it breeds this quite sort of voracious form of intelligence that's designed to extract specific forms of knowledge and then iterate upon them in order to, to beat us at the things that we enjoy and ultimately su to supplant us in various ways. But what I think is also very interesting about that is it, quite often if you stare at it long enough it really reveals the extent to which despite the fact we're constantly trying to replicate human intelligence in various ways we're also demonstrating the ways in which these this machine intelligence is deeply unlike the human you know one of the reasons it is successful obedience is it does come up with strategies that are not human-like um you know it may be trained against humans or it may be set off on its its own but it is doing something that is very unlike human intelligence. And that was another of the real realizations for me in, in, in writing Ways of Being was that there's something, there's something fascinating about a moment in which we are being forced to recognize, having been blind to it for so long, that other forms of intelligence than the human exist. That, that, that if we're capable of creating a form of intelligence that is not like the human intelligence, then more than one kind of intelligence exists. And if more than one kind of intelligence exists, then a potentially infinite number of forms or ways of doing intelligence exist. And it's at that moment that we start to look around ourselves and realize, oh, we're surrounded by these mm -hmm. different kinds of intelligence that we haven't given enough credence to, but are waiting there just you know, to be heard and, and listened to if we, if we actually seek for them. Yeah. Do, what specific lessons do you think are there for us to learn with something like machine intelligence or or the larger uh, planetary forms of intelligence that maybe we've been blind to? Like, is there something that we can that you can put your finger on that is maybe a, a nuance of intelligence or or the 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 main the main realizations about intelligence that I had writing this book, and I did not come to come to this as a, as a psychologist or a neuroscientist. You know, I, I came to it as a, an interested writer and artist with a background in kind of computer science and and the visual arts, and just trying to get handles on this. And so, really, you know, what happened was a lot of my own kind of preconceptions were were challenged in doing so. Um, the first of which is that. Um, 
that there is really no good definition of intelligence. Intelligence is one of these things that we say all the time, and we mostly agree on what we're talking about in that particular moment, but is actually very poorly defined. You can look at various qualities. You know, there's a bunch of things like memory and planning, um, certain like tool use, certain ways of acting, certain kind of mental cognitive systems that we like to think of as intelligent behavior and any definition of intelligence we usually take a kind of grab bag of those things and say well that's intelligence but really what we we've always meant by intelligence is what humans do mm. so we already have this kind of blind spot to to other ways other ways of thinking and and realizing quite how stark that was was quite a realization because it then allows you to look at other intelligences intelligences are new and when you start to do that you start to see that a lot of the other assumptions that go along with with that don't really hold. Um, and in particular, you know, my conception of intelligence now, as well as being something that is essentially more than human, is also to constantly be reminded that intelligence is um, uh, embodied and it's relational. Um, and what that means is it's something that doesn't just happen inside the head and it doesn't just happen within individuals. Um, uh, one of my favorite examples of, of how bad we are at recognizing the intelligence of other beings um, is, uh, is Gibbons. Um, Gibbons are uh, a brilliant, uh, you know, obviously clever, um, highly evolved apes, uh, very close to us in the kind of evolutionary history. And yet for years they presented a problem, which is that they consistently failed and, and refused to participate in one of the kind of standard tests of intelligence, which is tool use. Um, and what, you know, behavioral scientists used to do is they'd put Gibbons along with a whole bunch of other apes into an enclosure and they'd give them a tool like a stick, you know, just lying there on the ground and place some food out of reach and they'd wait and see if the animal used the stick to get the food. And the thing is, most apes do this fine, the chimpanzees and the orangutans and, and, and gorillas who are sort of between us and the gibbon on this kind of semi-imaginary scale, um, but also a bunch of ones that we consider to be lower, you know, like kind of um, baboons and, and macaque monkeys and various things like that. And so gibbons presented this problem, like why, why do they not fit within our understanding? And it was only when the experiment was redesigned and the sticks were hung from the top of the gibbons enclosure that the gibbons immediately grasped the sticks and used them as we might expect them to do and um, because they simply didn't see them the same way when they were lying on the ground because gibbons are arboreal they they live most of their time in the trees and so they have an intelligence that is oriented upwards uh, and they have a body pattern that is uh, configured for making use of things that appear to them in a different way. It's, it, they even have like particularly long fingers, which make it very hard for them to pick up things off the ground, but very good at picking things off the trees. And so in, it, just in this moment that the gibbon, we changed our perspective in order to recognize how gibbon's intelligence might be configured differently. The gibbon also showed us that intelligence is embodied. It's not just about what happens in the head, but is actually about the entire pattern of the body and therefore one's whole life experience and surroundings. Um, and and I, I say also that intelligence is relational because it is something that appears between bodies in situations. Uh, the brain is not a thing existing in a vat. Uh, which is also why most AIs are so incredibly limited. Uh, because even having a few senses, uh, but also particular actuators, ways of actually making or doing things in the world, changing the structure of the way of the world around us is also a huge part of our intelligence. Um, I mean, anyone who's had the experience of kind of going to a place and, and remembering something or having a particular experience that they then relate to that place knows that human intelligence is essentially uh, embedded in the world around us. We make use of the world as, as part of our intelligence apparatus. You could say the same for kind of mobile phones and computers. We outsource our, our cognition to, to other devices and it only is only accessible to us when we're in relationship with those things. But you also see things like um, the way in which spiders store information and um, plans about the world in the form of their webs, um, that cognition extends beyond the body. So all of which is to say that the intelligence as we've as historically thought of it is not something internalized, unique to humans and, and, and just in this kind of single clump, but is part of our ongoing connection with the world. Yeah, do you think we're in a situation now where we're maybe 
we've we've engineered ourselves into a maladaptive environment where our metaphorical stick is on the ground when it really should be up in the air do you know what i mean like have we have we maybe thought about things in a way that have made the environment not conducive to us because we've we didn't think like we did with the baboons yeah i mean well we've certainly created a situation which through our own narrow view of um what we think is good for us mm-hmm. um and which has made us given us the illusion that we can make use of everything else on the planet has certainly created um a, a maladapted and maladjusted world which is kind of returning to damage us um i think particularly with regard to our, our computational tools we've constructed along them them along very very narrow line lines uh, but they've become so powerful we imagine them as the only way to think at all um you know it's it's very striking to me and i write about this in the book that you know 99.999% of all computers in existence are of one type of computer right they are they are the the universal turing machine this binary machine that was kind of first described by alan turing in the 1930s um that has a very an incredibly powerful but very very limited structure turing himself said that the the automatic machine it was a limited machine that could only do whatever you told it to do it's not adaptive um like life is adaptive um and it is designed to operate only in very sort of enclosed circumstances and yet this tool has become the basis of pretty much all life on earth it's what we used not only to 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 access the world and to gather information but to to organize that information to categorize that knowledge uh, it reproduces its own kind of binary algorithmic form into our systems of thinking and knowledge and that is relatively new i mean it's it's less than 100 years old at this point and yet has come to completely dominate human thinking because of its power but a power that has um is showing its limitations in really powerful ways. Um and you know one of the things I write about in the book is that um other systems are available essentially even if it, it's it's really extraordinary if you go back to Turing's very first couple of papers on what he called the automatic machine and we call the Turing machine or the universal Turing machine that is the basis of almost all of our computers Turing himself says that this is only one type of computer and that another type of computer is possible and he doesn't say very much about it um he calls it uh, a choice machine or an oracle machine but he says in a really um uh con- not confusing but slightly uh deflationary um footnote he just says about the 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 oracle machine that whatever it is it cannot be a machine and then just kind of leaves that hanging and goes on with all of his other computational work um but what the oracle machine is 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 a a computer which doesn't just work entirely internally that doesn't just step through a set of pre-programmed conditions and try to solve one single problem as all of our machines do and and really as we kind of imagined the brain to be doing rather it stops at certain points in its process and looks for input from the outside from 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 the greater world and attempts to communicate with something outside of itself in order to understand the system in the broader system in which it's operating better to understand its ecosystem and therefore to be capable of adjusting its programming adjusting its course based on the actual situation it finds itself in and that is the basis for a lot of thinking in disciplines like cybernetics that take these very narrow rigid fixed ideas of computation into kind of quite interesting new directions and they're also present within disciplines like soft robotics and with various forms of alternative ai uh, in kind of the biological um systems and so on and so forth that are starting to map out some alternatives to this very monolithic narrow corporate ai that i described yeah and i feel like this kind of gets into a point you make in the book as well that i'd love for you to expand on if you could which is that uh it's basically really bad to let ai's make decisions for us that we just capitulate to their whatever decision they come up with without maybe that feedback loop that the oracle machine might provide so could you talk maybe a little bit about why you think you know even something as mundane as maybe like a gps giving us directions creates what i think you call boredom and fear that kind of permeates society yeah i mean it it doesn't even take an ai really to do this um there's um there's there's something that happens when we are 
given assistance by something particularly something fast and automated that uh that kind of intercedes between us and the world um there's a this is this is often called uh automation bias in fact and it's been quite well studied by psychologists um but the the kind of popular example is is what park rangers in the UK, in the US call death by GPS, which is the growing and not insignificant number of cases of people who are found dead in their vehicles because they've followed inaccurate GPS um, advice against all the evidence of their senses. So people driving into kind of Death Valley or other kind of inhospitable places and running out of gas, not calorie food, or just going so far off road, or even to the point of driving into rivers and lakes, because this bright line on the screen tells them there's a road there, and they trust the machine over their own senses. And that is terrible, and can also seem a little bit comedic, which is dangerous, because this isn't a product of stupidity. Um, automation bias um, occurs in everybody, including people who are super highly trained and essentially should know better. There's a very famous study of airline pilots in simulators who, despite having thousands, tens of thousands of hours of flight experience, you know, and having that um, really highly trained pilots indexical knowledge of how a plane functions and what to do in every conceivable situation and all of the checklists that have been developed and so on and so far. These, these experiments showed very clearly that if those pilots are given um, the wrong instruction by an automated system that they trust, um, even you know, within just the right time frame of that decision-making process, 99% of the time they will follow it because essentially and probably because our brains are designed or have at least evolved to take on those sort of cues because our brains try to do as least work as possible and so it's a very efficient kind of hack on our cognition um, to provide us with easier solutions at just the moment that we need them and so much of contemporary technology has has kind of crept up so close to the skin that that it can kind of guide us and mold us in those particular moments so powerfully. I think too of something like Pokemon Go, you know, which was, um, it, I think it's probably still going on, but certainly it's height, this kind of incredibly powerful and occasionally incredibly fun game um, that, you know, got people out onto the streets and running around and doing all these kind of interesting things. We saw some of the, like the weird crowd effects of that, where thousands of people would descend on a, on a location. What was kind of less talked about was the fact that, you know, when that game was released, however it is, Nintendo and Niantic, I think the game company, had pre-sold the locations of most of the, uh, the gyms, these places you needed to go to kind of recharge or whatever it is, um, uh, to large brands. To, to Starbucks and McDonald's and so, so others. And so people who were kind of running around playing this game were, were literally being kind of physically walked into these corporate locations without having any idea that this was kind of absolutely part of the programming of the game itself. So this kind of control over people's behavior in, in multiple ways is, is so easy to do with our technologies that um, I think we have to be incredibly cautious of of any technology that essentially removes our conscious choice and agency. Um, whatever the intention of that doing it is, our, our own kind of critical thinking around it will always matter far, far more for our health and safety and the health and safety of everything around us. Because for me, the, the root of so much of that malaise that I mentioned earlier and that you've just brought up of this kind of uncertainty and fear shading into anger and hate that characterizes so much of kind of public discourse in the present moment is a result of our awareness however unconscious of that real lack of agency and that becomes really critical when it comes to things like dealing with the climate emergency because we all know something terrible is happening and yet most of us have no idea how to deal with it. And we're paralyzed by fear on the one hand, because the acknowledgement of the climate emergency brings on a form of trauma that we are, that we do not have the tools to um, most of us to, to even acknowledge, let alone work through in the present. But it also strikes the heart of this lack of agency that we possess, that we know so little about the world around us, that we feel a lack of uh, power over our own lives. 
and that and 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 when you lack that eight that sense of agency the knowledge that your actions are meaningful and can make a difference even within the limited sphere of your own life then our ability to enact political change at a much greater scale is is is, is zero and so there's a real like suppression of collective agency through this suppression of individual agency that happens through these technologies when i was going to say it feels like we're kind of trapped in a lot of ways now in these in these ai systems that are mostly being used i feel like for surveillance capitalism to steer us away from thinking about those things that are more challenging and we're happy to hand over that control because we don't want to think about those things because like you said it's traumatic yeah it's it's it's, it's always easier not to think about these things mm-hmm. um uh they are hard to think about um and that that's that's very clear and that's something that is taken advantage of by a lot of these systems that then you know make lots of money by selling us on the alternatives mm-hmm. and that can be a, a critique of capitalism i'm more than happy to make that critique um uh but it's also something to do with with the ease of these systems being put into that particular use because i think it's also really important to emphasize that these tools can always be turned around and put to other uses they contain kind of really extraordinary uh potentialities for seeing the world differently and not just the world through screens but for example i mean just to to, for a story about the 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 dual use abilities to use a military term uh for for most of these technologies uh one of my so many favorite stories in the book but one, one of them is the is the is the one about um the uh senior manager at nasa who got this um phone call one day this, is, this happened a few years ago in kind of 2017 2018 um and he tells the story that he, he just sort of got this phone call slightly out of the blue and he had to do some checking to make sure it was real from someone who claimed to be from the national geospatial agency um which is the um kind of third u.s intelligence agency after cia and cia and nsa uh, it's the one that runs the secret space program um and he told this nasa manager the person on the phone that they had a couple of satellites going spare and did nasa want them and this nasa manager after checking a few things ended up in a kind of huge warehouse in upstate new york where in this immense secret clean room were two space telescopes more advanced than the hubble space telescope uh which is has been for 20 more years the most advanced thing we put into space this predates the james webb uh, though i think these are definitely equivalents in, in technology to the james webb as well and were themselves 10 to 20 years old surplus to requirements of the um surveillance industry um and those two satellites are now being refurbished by nasa and i think one of them has launched or is launching very soon as w first the world the wide field infrared spectrometry telescope uh which is going into space to look for um signs of dark matter and the origin of the universe and also to scan for exoplanets new forms of life in outer space and pretty much i mean no shade to nasa they did a lot of work here but the main thing they did was turn it around to point it up instead of down like these things were designed to be pointed at earth to spy on us to um in secret and like you know uh maintain existing power relationships and they've been flipped around to look at the world uh, and the universe and to increase our knowledge and agency within it and so there is always within these technologies the potential for kind of total and radical change um and and that's really you know, a really key thing to understand when talking about this you know, for me it deepens the argument against capitalism because you can really separate you know the effects of these technologies um or their potential effects from the the particular uh things that they're mostly used for in the present and then you have to start looking for for you know for other ways in which uh we can create them because it's very obvious that simply the code alone or the techniques we have in the present are so easily captured by corporate forces and that's why they mostly operate in the way they do it's not enough just to say well you know some of us will build them in a different way you need to build quite robust societal collective frameworks around them in order to think very deeply about what doing it in another way means um, one of my favorite examples of this is um uh the uh a group called Teiroa Media in in New Zealand who for the last few years have been using machine learning to build 
um, translation systems uh, between uh, Maori, uh, indigenous language and culture of New Zealand and, uh, and other languages, particularly English, uh, because they were just a radio station. Uh, I mean, a very wonderful radio station. They'd been broadcasting for kind of 20, 30 years in Maori and across a range of dialects. So they had this huge corpus of recorded speech and they wanted to, to index it. Uh, in order to index something like that using machine learning, you also need a corpus of tagged speech. So they needed some sentences in Maori with like actually typed equivalents. So they knew how the translation would work just, just to transcribe it. And what they did was they reached out to their community. They reached out to almost all the Maori language kind of organizations in New Zealand to gather this corpus of, of tagged speech, literally just asking people to record themselves reading particular sentences. And they got a huge response and they were capable of building in just a few months a uh, speech engine, speech recognition engine that equaled in power ones built by kind of large corporations. But what's also particularly key here is that they, A, they did it with their community, but it remains owned by their communities. One of the, one of the big arguments they've had subsequently is that large corporations have tried to either buy that technology directly or to pay some of the people who previously volunteered their time to, um, to, uh, to do this again for their language systems. And the argument that they make is that this is a form of kind of ongoing colonialism where these you know, the, the only reason that a large corporation wants a Maori speech recognition engine is essentially to sell things, including their own language, back to the Maoris themselves, rather than having a kind of community ownership over this system. And they've even developed a language which uh, a, a protocol and, and um, uh, licensing for things like this that are made by indigenous communities that are currently being used by other indigenous communities around the world in order to kind of restrict the use of this to the communities that make it that make them themselves. And so there is not within this necessarily a big obvious profit motive, particularly if you're not scaling at the size of a, a corporation. But what there is are very, very different models for how we can usefully engage the kind of process of AI and machine learning for benefits of community rather than purely as, as kind of profit making things that involve changing the fundamental structure of how we go about building technology in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that idea, but the place I always get stuck on is that in a world where it is driven by capitalism, where a lot of people do need the money, how do you incentivize people to do something, you know, for your community or, you know, to basically turn the satellite around in the case of NASA? rather than take the exploitive, you know, consumerism path when there is so many aspects working against us. It seems like in a lot of ways we really need to have this kind of feedback loop where there's a cultural shift at the same time, a technolog technological shift that then enables a cultural shift that enables a better, you know, technological yeah, shift. No, these, it, these things are tightly tight. Yeah. And it, I'm just, it, it, but the hard part for me is it feels like the momentum is going against making these community decisions like, you know, they did in New Zealand and, and is pushing most people's decision-making apparatus, you know, apparatus into the, the negative incentives of capitalism. Yeah. And, and recognizing first and foremost, that that is a deliberate process that mm -hmm. is being done to people. Um, so that is part of a plan, however, semi unconscious, like I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think everyone doing it is like deeply evil, but, uh, but that's, that's, that is absolutely the track we're on. Uh, and, and, and in all these cases, any technological problem of sufficient scale is primarily a political one. It involves the, the community and culture that you're engaged with, but it requires thinking very hardly well. I had a real, real moment. And I was kind of writing this, thinking about um, thinking about one of these kind of, you know, supposedly terrifying paradoxes that crop up in these kind of arguments all the time, which is the thinking about the trolley problem, which I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with or anyone who's kind of familiar with AI or kind of machine ethics debates comes about a lot. Um, but briefly, the trolley problem is, you know, there is a runaway trolley car or tram for Europeans. Um, approaching uh, a switch point and on one side of the 
thing is like a little old lady and the other one is like six children or something and it's basically just you know how do you try and do the least harm within these kind of automated systems and it's brought up all the time as some kind of like show-stopping moral quandary that tells us that there's always difficult hard decisions to be made within this kind of development but the thing about the trolley problem is it ignores absolutely everything else that matters in this in this equation um it ignores the fact that um a, you know a system was designed with these particular constraints it ignores the fact that um uh, a bunch of other you know things have to come into play around the cultural design of a system in order to produce this in the first place and um, the fact that it, it, a real world tram scenario includes not just those people on the track, but everyone else on the roads. The fact that you've decided to have a public transport system over a car one, the fact that you've decided to make a, um, a system of brakes that's capable of failing in in a, in, in this kind of way. Um, it could go, go on and on, but what it does, it ignores the entire context of decisions that went into producing this particular moment. And that is our great failure in kind of technological ethics in the moment is that we only see these kind of inflection points of, of of where harm is done rather than focusing on the far broader culture in which in which those situations are produced um uh you know and we see it happening now with with all the discussions around uh self-driving cars, which is a kind of test case of AI systems, all the discussions around kind of pedestrian safety and so, uh, you know, its relationship to self-driving. There are really only hard questions if you think that self-driving cars are a thing that just obviously should exist without respect to the communities and, and um, you know, people that surround them all the time. And so, yeah, there's a huge, huge gap between the way that we think about the particular instances of technology and the actual conditions of life that need to be brought to bear upon them. And money is the thing that mostly forces that, that constriction of viewpoints. Um, but I, 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 I like to think that it is potentially changing and that the certain awarenesses and changes of thought remain entirely possible. Um, not least because of the ways in which our technology has in certain times created that greater awareness you know i'm thinking of things like the satellite programs giving us this just the you know the all the kind of the the small the pale blue dot you know which changed environmental consciousness to such a degree the shot from outer space um you know i i relate very closely my thoughts on the possibility of um the strangeness of ai intelligence making us think more about the intelligence of other beings to the fact that without the internet we wouldn't have been capable of recognizing the way in which forest networks operate um when the first um researchers who start to discover the kind of extraordinary networks that exist within forests, the relationships between tree, right, tree roots and fungal mycelium that allow nutrients and information as well to kind of pass um, through the forest roots. They were also some of the first people in the 1970s and 80s because they were working in large institutions to be connected up to the internet, which was the birth of a certain way of thinking about networks. They came to that work with a model of networks in their mind, which didn't exist previously. And in fact, even the, the mathematics that was developed to describe the internet network theory, which was developed because previous mathematical topology didn't, you know, describe well enough the behavior of this very odd thing, the internet, which had all of these different nodes of different weights, and you could take them in and put them out, and it didn't seem to change the overall kind of transmission information power of the network. That mathematics was then used to understand the ways in which the trees were communicating. The two are not identical, but they form a kind of powerful metaphor that we were only capable of de developing because of our technology. Um, we seem to have the need as a species to kind of construct these ways of seeing ourselves internally, either in our minds or kind of through tool use and the building of certain technologies that then allow us to see the world afresh yeah. um, to, and that radically change our perspective on the world. And that potential remains always within us. We're always capable of reimagining the world from some of the most surprising kind of beginning points 
um, when it that necessity is upon us. Um, I don't necessarily hold high hopes that we're going to do it in particular speed in the present moment, but it remains something useful for me to think about. Yeah. <clears throat> so as we come up kind of towards the end of our time here, would it be fair to say that your hope or maybe the way the stopgap that you see in this kind of exploitive momentum that intelligence and technology and capitalism have kind of brought us to that you think we can maybe turn that around by the fact that as technology progresses it gives us new insights into things that kind of slow that momentum or undermine it and help us kind of see how we can do better i don't think technology alone is going to do any of those things i, no. I mean uh, like but um but if we are capable of of sharing the knowledge of how to build these technologies in ways that that little stories like the kind of Maori uh, example mm -hmm. do give us some hope to, um, we are capable utterly of changing uh, the direction of them. Um, that will require, as I've been saying, kind of huge political changes. But the the lessons are right there. Um, we're we're really only just now starting to glimpse the abilities of other beings around us and as we learn more and more about them you know whether it's simple things like the slime mold equations or whether it's you know the forms of politics that i write about extensively in the book enacted by other species that are real lessons for us it, in certain ways it becomes untenable to stick to our existing processes when more and more alternatives become available to us and start to become tested out and actually practiced um i do think that there is a uh, a tendency a hopefulness within us that pushes us towards those um and they're going to be necessary because we're not about to stop climate change or or significantly mitigate it anytime soon and so alternative strategies are are become mandatory essentially uh, in the situation that we're going to face and and whether however much we do in the next few decades to address the changes that are going to happen um, that's going to have to involve looking around us for the strategies and knowledges that exist beyond the human and beyond our technologies although perhaps in partnership with them um, uh, to, 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 to survive at all in the next decades and so that that doesn't sound a lot like hope to me uh it's it and I, i'm not that interested in hope or optimism i'm interested particularly in agency in what we're capable of imagining capable of feeling ourselves capable of and therefore capable of actually doing when the time becomes necessary that's a a lovely note to end on james but i do want to quickly offer you a chance to uh <laughs> put any closing notes on and if you'd like i know obviously we're going to put a link to the book in the show notes um and tell everybody where they can find it but if you have any closing thoughts or projects you're working on that you'd like to share or talk about feel free well so i mean you know having written that book i'm now trying to work um i'm trying to follow some of its rules essentially you know, one of the, you know, trying to take a few of those ideas from the book and say, well, you know, if we actually started to work along these lines, what would that, that sort of look like? And so a project I have going at the moment is is a project called Server Farm, um, which is intentionally wide open at this point and potentially almost certainly decades long, because one of the things you find when you start to work with plants and animals is that they don't fit within your kind of standard schedules or timelines. Um, but Server Farm is a project essentially to reconstruct the entire architecture of computation as we imagine it at the moment. And as I critique within the book as being this incredibly narrow, binary and um, maladaptive or rather non-adaptive kind of process to bring in um, other species animals, plants, and microorganisms um, to start to take on some of the, to, to, to maintain the metaphor of computation, input, processing, output, everything we know from quite simple architectures, but to see what happens when, for example, some of that computation is being performed by slime molds or fungi or other kinds of microorganisms, when some of that memory storage is being performed by DNA changes within plants and seeds, um, when the when the output is a, a field of flowers whose um, uh you know placement is designed by patterns through those microorganisms and um, this this is a very large scale and long-term project as i said but it it's a place in which the kind of more than human relationships of equality 
and care and respect that I describe in the book might actually be practiced. When we see other species and perhaps technologies as AIs as being both persons and having their own kind of rights, responsibilities, being things that we can't really know, which is something we haven't really talked about in this conversation. It's very interesting to me. How do you work with systems that you don't fully understand and can't really know because they're so different to you? How do we do that in ways that manifest equality? Um, and ultimately having this access to cognitive systems that are composed of us, machines, and other species, what sort of questions can we ask? How can we reframe uh, the things that we want to know and how can we understand the answers? So it's a big, big project uh, that, that I don't know how it will go, but it's already leading to all kinds of kind of fascinating questions about how we relate and how we think. Is there any way for people to kind of keep an eye on that? To to get involved with their interests. Yeah, yeah. Right you can go to serverfarm.jamesbridle.com. You can see me talking about it. You can even read a weird little science fiction story about it. Perfect. Lovely. James, uh, man, thank you so much for this well-articulated conversation and with uh, a lot to think about. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>